0: Still the night. Churros. brigadeiro, Calzone. Apple paw. Mm-hmm. Sui chu and mash. Toad in the hole. Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins and I'm the Executive Chef at the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today has been a wine connoisseur for the last 45 years. She's a British master of wine, a wine critic, journalist, and wine author. She has written various books, her latest being the 24 Wine Expert. She was described by Decanter Magazine as the most respected wine critic and journalist in the world. She received the most excellent order of the British Empire. And among under-distinguished, she was honored by the Portuguese government with the Order of Entrepreneurial Merit. She writes weekly for the Financial Times and writes for her website JensensRobinson.com. She also provides advice for the wine cellar of Queen Elizabeth II. Jensen Robinson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great career. We start right away. Is that is any of this that you it was the hardest one to achieve? Or are you more proud of?
1: I think. Probably the most difficult thing I was asked to do was come up with the first edition of the Oxford Companion to Wine, which it's now in its fourth edition. But initially, I had to cover 800 pages with two columns of text on them to tell everyone everything there was to know about wine in kind of you know, 4,000 alphabetically arranged entries. And that was a bit scary, not least because it was in the early 90s when there was no email. Uh, I was commissioning articles from kind of eminent history professors and top scientists and all things like that. And they all appeared either churned out of my fax machine or on, you know, bits of paper. Uh, so it was a very, very different uh, operation to what it is today. Yeah. that was you know f- finishing all that and, and and in a way, slicing up this topic that i 've devoted my life to in logical segments and categories and topics and all that kind of thing that was difficult because the pages were empty and they had to be filled.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I normally start the podcast with two questions, but I started with this one, but I'm going for my two questions. I assume it's a yes, but have you ever been to Portugal?
1: Oh, yes. Many, many, many many times. And in fact, you probably know that until recently, Portugal was the one country that we Brits were allowed to go
0: to You can't anymore, right? They did it again. Yeah, they
1: they, they stopped it. Yeah. And it's really, uh, they stopped it just when everybody was there having been for <laughs> the big football <laughs> match. Uh, it was it was terrible. I think you are allowed to go to to um, the Falkland Islands as okay. well. <laughs>
0: Perfect.
1: But that's not a big holiday destination. Yeah.
0: Do you know any Portuguese words?
1: Ng- <laughs>
0: those things end no no that's a no Oh, <laughs> <laughs> huh. Porto you're fluent yeah, yeah. I, speak, I speak
1: Portuguese obviously I was
0: very curious because when I was doing some research about you all these honors you have you did get uh, an honor from the Portuguese government correct mm. Mm. Yes. Why, why so what was the why was that or what did why? you do for the yeah
1: <laughs> you may well ask I think it was because there was a particularly charming Portuguese ambassador in London at the time, and he was especially interested in wine.
0: It was Valera? No.
1: First name. João uh, Valera.
0: Yeah, I think it was. Uh, yeah, he, he, was, he was, was the previous yeah. ambassador. Sorry, now we went off the rails here. He was, <laughs> when he moved to London from DC, Mm-hmm. That's why, what? Well, that's why the position to be the head chef at the in Washington DC in the Portuguese Embassy mm-hmm. becomes available, and that's how I moved to DC first to be the chef ah. at the port. He moves to DC uh, to London. And he takes his uh, chef with him, and he was a wine. He loved. He yeah. was a. He's a lovely he lo- guy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. See how the, it's a small world. Okay. So he yeah. basically said she needs to get an award. Yes, basically. I've got
1: my green and white stripes. Um, yeah.
0: How old were you the first time you tasted wine? And do you still remember what kind of wine was it?
1: I, might, I was probably in my teens. And I think it was probably, the one I remember was going out to lunch with my grandmother, one of those ladies ladies' lunches in the Somerset countryside, very rural England. And there was a bottle of a, of a white wine again, which is very, very popular in Britain at that stage. And everyone called it Lutimer Riesling because they didn't know that you actually Riesling is pr- pronounced Riesling. Mm-hmm. And it, it was shipped in bulk to the London docks from Slovenia, but chock full of chemicals so that it just smelt more like a chemistry lab than, a, you know, than anything to do with fruit. But of course, I, you know, I, I, I just thought, oh, this is grown up. This is exciting, this and it's probably up. quite sweet as well. Yes.
0: <laughs> you study mathematics and philosophy in college. Yeah. How has each of those disciplines helped you in your career?
1: The bridge between maths and philosophy is logic, and having a logical brain, plus a respect for both arts and science, really, really helped me. Do that Oxford Companion to Wine thing, and I think probably being quite logical helps me every day when I'm editing, publishing, writing for JancisRobinson.com. That I've, you know, I've got to remember all these links to past articles and how best to uh, display everything and what category it should be. So I think, yeah, probably having quite a logical brain yeah.
0: helps. So you're a master of wine, which is, I, I think it sounds very bougie. It sounds nice. There's only 416 masters and with 493 people have passed the master of exam since 1953. So it's not exactly a easy peasy thing to do. Can you explain why is that? So why so difficult and why did you feel that necessity or why was that a necessity for you to do the sure. exam? Because you were the first one outside of the wine trade to have that diploma.
1: That's right. Um, I think it's, the pass rate is, is shockingly low because the exam is so wide-ranging. You've got to pass three practical exams, which in each of which you're given 12 glasses of wine. You know nothing about them. You have to answer all sorts of questions about them and identify and assess them as, as closely as possible. Plus, you've got to know a, lot, a heck of a lot of science, uh, a lot of geography, obviously, and you've got to be able to write And so those those are very unrelated skills. And there aren't that many people who can do all those things. There are various people who waltz through the theory, the written papers and just can't taste to save their lives and and vice versa. You know, I did it for a funny reason, because in the early 80s, I was best known for hosting the world's first television series about wine. There were three series. The wine programme was called, imaginatively. And I think I was seen perhaps as a bit of a popularizer. And a, a journalist wrote an article comparing various current wine writers of the time to grape varieties. And my predecessor at the Financial Times, Edmund Penning-Roussel, a great Bordeaux expert, sort of real English gent, he was Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, would last forever and and... Straight-backed and all the rest. And my friend Oz Clark was Chardonnay because he was sort of casual and welcoming and sunny and all the rest. And I, if you please, was Gamay, which is the grape of Beaujolais, as you know, which is famous, especially at that time. Beaujolais was was known for sort of not lasting, for being, you know, a one-season wine. And I thought, huh, huh, you obviously think I'm not serious about wine. So when the Institute of Masters of Wine realised that Masters of Wine were not immortal and that they would have to relax their rules and allow in people who weren't actually in the wine trade. And they asked me to have a go because I'd done well in the exams leading up to that. That really was, that newspaper article was a big impetus to have a go. And I was lucky, I had a fair wind behind me and I did pass the first time. And I didn't really think it was a big deal because I just assumed if you were a wine writer chances were you would pass the exam. And it was only when a few fellow wine writers had a go afterwards and didn't pass, I started to think, hmm, maybe maybe that was quite an
0: achievement. Did you rub it in a little bit? No, of course (laughs) not. (laughs) Look at me now. But Um, I don't
1: actually, I've never, if you are a master of wine, you're allowed to put MW after your name. But I've never actually used MW Professionally, because I'd already okay. written a few books before I passed the exam. So I thought it would be a bit pretentious, really. It's okay.
0: I mean, you can do it, but it's fine. I, I, all- I understand. Yeah. yeah it's fine. <laughs> so, so if you're invited for a dinner party, I'm sure people know, of course, what do you, you know, you are a wine connoisseur. Did it happen in the past? You went to someone's house and the wine was just so bad that you just kept sipping on water or you just go along and to be polite, to be like, oh, no, this wine is awesome. Thank yeah, you.
1: Probably Thank you. a very, a, it would have to be a very long time ago.
0: Yeah, And I'm
1: really, really lucky because, you know, most, an awful lot of people who care about what they eat and drink have a few special bottles stashed away waiting for a special occasion or or the right person to share them with. And I think a lot of the time I get those bottles, you know, people mm-hmm. think, oh, my brother-in-law isn't worth it, but maybe that's <laughs> Robinson who, uh, who writes about wine. <laughs> Do
0: you have a few of those bottles with you to open for a special occasion?
1: I've got a cellar full of 2000 bottles that are waiting for the right to-
0: because i'm going to europe next summer just you know i mean nothing too fancy for me nothing too fancy Uh for me so let's just play this very quick game about some myths about wine that i'm sure you answered this before but some people still think that things work this way the first one true or false white wine with fish and red wine with meat because that's always i still work in an environment the embassy that can be a little more structured in a way that you know back in the days was like this true or false Absolutely false. Thank you. See, I keep telling them. Nobody here listens to me. Why is that?
1: <laughs> because uh, there are lots of red wines that have the nice, fresh acidity that you want with a lot of fish dishes and that quite lightweight. With, I mean, not all fish dishes are uh, lightweight, but, but uh, some are. If you're having a, just a sort of plain bit of white fish, then you want something pretty light and fresh with it. But similarly, there are great robust fish stews or or chewy fish like tuna that are just fabulous with with red wines. And then if you've got a kind of full bodied white, a really good chardonnay, for instance, um, that can go easily with. I mean, if you go to Alsace, where most of the wine's white, they're drinking their white Alsace wines with game and you know creamy sauces and, and every sort of savoury dish. You can imagine it's a a very, and also actually in Bordeaux where they are, they kind of tend to think white wine is an inferior beast, but they pretty much always have a fishy first course and they, they often serve a red wine with that.
0: All wine gets better with age.
1: Absolute rubbish. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true of maybe the top 5% by volume of wine produced. Um, and it's actually quite a measure of quality in a fine wine, that it it does get better with time in the bottle. But 95% of the wine produced today is made to be stuck on a shelf and drunk that evening, really. Um, it If you're lucky, it'll last a year, but it won't necessarily get any better after a year.
0: Do you also, this was just me now thinking, uh, when it comes to temperature, people just have this obsession idea that... Mm-hmm white wine has to be ice cold and uh, red wine has to be like, you know, (laughs) that hot temperature. Does that happen a lot as well?
1: It does. I I, I keep bleating on about it. And sometimes people take notice if, if a wine is, if anything is too cold, you can't actually taste it because um, as you know, major, major component in what we call taste is the smell. And if it's too cold, you won't, those molecules, those aroma molecules won't, escape the surface of the wine and go up your nose and give you two-thirds of the pleasure that the winemaker wanted to so it's a great mistake to serve white wine too cold especially a full-bodied white wine like chardonnay I mean champagne quite cold it can be but but a a full-bodied white serve it kind of cellar cool about you know 55 degrees rather than ridiculously low and Oh, gosh, the, mo- the much more common fault is serving red wine too warm, isn't it? An yes. awful lot of restaurants have their bottles kind of above the bar where all the hot air rises. And, you know, once once a red wine gets to – well, I, I think in centigrade, I'm afraid. So once a red wine gets to about 24 centigrade, what's that, Fahrenheit?
0: 24, maybe 72, something like, like
1: little, that. Seven, yeah, yeah. Then it starts to lose its ability to refresh, which, is what all drinks should do. The aroma gets sort of soupy, and uh, and you've lost the precision. Sort yeah, of thing. it's
0: seventy five. Yeah, Fahrenheit Seventy five. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Google. Okay, there are uh, roughly sixty four thousand nine hundred twenty wine producers in the world. Mm. Uh, so more and more. Just in the US, there's five hundred more than it was last year. Do you believe for the wine business, the more the better is okay for the business, for the competition, or sometimes gets too much?
1: Hmm, interesting. For, well, I think of it actually from the consumer. I, I, I think of myself as writing always for the consumer rather than the wine trade. And I suppose for the consumer, the more the merrier. And the more competitive the wine business is, in general, the, the more the consumer benefits, even if it's tough for the wine trade. But, you know, Europe for years has been producing a surplus of wine, which makes makes life pretty difficult for the small farmer. Um And I do. And there are many wine producers I feel very sorry for. They're making just I mean, the quality of wine today is just so much greater than it was when I started. And nowadays it's it's pretty much impossible to find a technically faulty wine. You might find a boring wine, but you won't find. And I mean, when I started drinking wine, really, as a student in the late Sixties, heavens! You know, <laughs> uh, uh, honestly, two out of three wines that I encountered w- smelt horrible. Why was so, that? Chemicals were used much more, sulphur mm-hmm. do- dioxide in particular, uh, because the the wines tended to be sweeter. They needed winemakers were in a hurry. They didn't understand how to stabilize wine properly with time rather than with chemicals. That kind of thing, and consumers weren't nearly as sophisticated. Whereas now. I can, I mean, I, I come across the odd wine that's been spoilt by one of your Portuguese corks, but it's very, very rare to to get come across one that's got a, fault, a real fault inherent in the wine.
0: Mm-hmm. Which shortcuts do you see also nowadays wine producers taking today that doesn't necessarily translate into a good business practice?
1: Well, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know about how much money they're making out of it, but the habits that I disdain are things and I think it's getting less but when say in the 90s and early years of this century colored uh, reds and called mega purple to make the wine look deeper that struck me as a cheat I would I'm actually a great fan of ingredient labeling I'd love to you know every pack of cookies will tell you absolutely everything that's in the product mm -hmm. and yet wine has miraculously escaped that And I would love to see winemakers being forced to say what they've put in the wine so that the people who put the least in, and it's just kind of grapes, are rewarded by geeks like me. I mean, half, you know, maybe 80% of consumers couldn't care less. But for those of us who do, I think it would be a real step in the right direction. Or people, I mean, I I actually, one of my favourite american wine producers is ridge vineyards in california that does this and occasionally they've had they've got their grapes so ripe that they think the wine is too alcoholic and and not in perfect balance so they actually add some water and they put that on the back label and i utterly respect that they're doing that for the good of the product rather than to eke it out you know
0: Going back a little bit where you were saying about for the consumers, it's great to have the more the mayor, uh, the wines, more wines, the better. Do you think, that as a consumer, you know, I come from more, of course, the food parts, and I think people more and more have the awareness or have the tendency to try to understand where everything comes from, ingredients, things like that. Do you think oh, that's yeah. the yeah. same thing happens with wine, that people do have more the knowledge? So. Yeah, there's,
1: a, there's a, a major trend towards um, o- local authenticity. Um, we see that in several different ways, a trend towards single vineyard wines, where we know exactly which spot on the globe was responsible for the wine. And a huge difference from the 90s, say, when the, a handful of international grape varieties were fashionable, like Cabernet, Chardonnay, that kind of thing. And now it's the more local, the more indigenous, the better. I think and people like to feel that they're getting, getting something that's, that's really local, along with the locavore food movement,
0: which innovations are you seeing, and going back to the wine producers, the new wine producers uh, doing, that they've come up with that put them ahead of the older competitions or competitors?
1: I think um, even, you know, there's the big natural wine movement, which is, is in parallel with the conventional wine movement. But, and some of the natural wine producers maybe have not made the finest wines But I think those wine producers who are going organic or even biodynamic and are just using deliberately stewing agrochemicals are just making everything in a much more natural fashion. The results are there to taste and to enjoy. And, And I mean, I think it's anyone, any grower of vines who's not, who's deliberately continuing to use a lot of agrochemicals is to be holistic, you know, sustainability. Um, we've just got to think about the planet, not use the resources. Oh, now my one of my bugbears is people who use heavy bottles because if you're looking at the carbon footprint of wine, it's the manufacture and transport of bottles, which is by far the biggest culprit. And you've still got people, notably in... In South America, actually, and, and North America to a certain extent, who are using heavy bottles as a marketing tool and hoping the consumer will think the heavier the bottle, the better the wine. But if you look, say, at the Bordeaux first growths that sell for you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars a bottle, they use very moderately weighted bottles. And there's a big move towards lighter and lighter bottles, which I admire and in fact on my website we when we can at the moment but if we're tasting at home we all have a little pair of scales next to where we taste and we make a note of how of the bottle weight so that we can clap those people who are deliberately using lighter bottles and point the finger at those who are using really heavy bottles
0: that's interesting yeah that's i never thought about the whole heavy light okay cork or screwed up
1: interesting um Screw cap is probably better for the wine and delivers to us consumers what the winemaker wanted us to taste. And I haven't seen any scientific suggestion that now that wine producers have mastered the art of applying screw caps, that uh, suggests that the screw cap is bad in any way for wine. It'll preserve it longer. It may preserve it too long. I think sometimes the ageing arc of a wine under screw cap, it may be too slow, or inconveniently slow. Um, and cork, unfortunately, whatever, you know, the, the cork manufacturers are doing their best at long last, but we still haven't got perfect corks. I mean, I, I was at a friend's for dinner on, on Friday night. We had three bottles that were tainted by a, a, a faulty cork, a bad cork. Yeah. Uh, and that, those were expensive wines. I can understand exactly why producers use corks. There are certain markets where screw caps are still seen as a sort of cheap alternative, but technically uh, I would go for screw cap.
0: I think more and more probably in the future, more and more will be. Well, it's
1: it's interesting. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Marketing triumphs science, it seems. Mm -hmm. And for instance, the Australians who along with the New Zealanders were the first to go completely ape about screw caps and, you could hardly find a corkscrew in the whole of Australia. But when China became their most valuable market, which it stopped being because of the as you know, Sino-Australian mm-hmm. bad feeling, they, the, the people exporting expensive wine to China promptly started using corks again because the Chinese don't like screw caps.
0: Okay country like portugal that you know we produce cork. Yeah. Oh. Do, you, do you think as a like you said it still has in the back of the mind a lot of people saying like no there's no way we're going for screw tops this is how we do things with cork." do you think that is very in raise also in companies
1: i i think it's a brave portuguese wine producer who uses a screw cap i do know one or two you know there's a quite a well-known australian winemaker in portugal david Babistock, who is utterly inculcated with the the cult of the screw cap. But I think I'm not sure he even uses screw caps. It's, it's a. I can also see the biodiversity argument for maintaining the cork forests of Allantasia and all that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a very finely nuanced argument, actually.
0: Genesis, I would love you to explain very briefly, if you can, a Portugal is known for amazing wines, of course, we have to say this. Mm. And a specific kind of wine is called the green wine. Mm-hmm. Could you explain because a lot of people ask me and they pour in the wine and pour in the, in the glass and it's not green and they get very upset with me that I did something about it can you explain what's the green wine that is in that region north? it just region?
1: means very young doesn't it yeah. and young with lots of fresh acidity and there's something actually about acidity that to me does taste like green vegetation or something like that
0: mm-hmm. do you like it
1: I do I do and um, and even some red Vino as well, actually, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Very well. So, so people, just in case people, you know, they always uh, bother me with that. Uh, what, what, what are the most important factors for someone to enjoy wine?
1: Following their own taste and not copying somebody else's, making up their own mind. But if someone says to me, I want to le- learn a bit more about wine, I know I ought to say, buy my books, you know, visit my website. But... What I actually say is form a relationship with a local wine retailer. Tell, they're very like book retailers, wine retailers. They love to talk about the product and they have strong feelings and they like to give advice. So go in and the way you would in a bookstore say, I have loved this X and Y, what can you recommend? Do it with wine. Say, this is the sort of wine that I've liked. What can you recommend? And, with, and if they're worth their salt, They'll recommend something that you'll enjoy a bit more or is better, better value or, you know, just a bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. That's the way
0: I'd go. Very well. Uh, before we go to our round of questions that I ask every guest, just as a curiosity, I'm not sure how much can you say, The being an advisor for the Queen Elizabeth, the second wine cellar, did, did Elizabeth call you like, hey, Genesis, how are you? By the way, I need oh, a little sure. bit of a... An...
1: brings me up most weeks. She <laughs> says, I'm, I'm having a steak, Genesis. What shall I serve with it? No, not but, in
0: fact. You've been doing this for a while now, right? Yeah since, uh, yeah, since
1: 05, I think. Since
0: 05. okay. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe you cannot answer this, but since the Bidens were just just there and they're still there actually was did you have an, any input on advising the wine or no
1: no the at state banquets that's not really our thing the it's the um foreign office cellar that supplies the wine I mean sometimes I've I have had a a little word like um I knew that there was quite a bit of le in the foreign office cellar and so when President Xi came I reminded them of that and said you know he'd want something really special how about that but it turned out his advisors told the foreign office that one of his arch enemies was called something like Pin, which, of course, is like, fun. So that's No, no, it's a no-go. <laughs> that's, that's as near as I've got. Okay.
0: <laughs> so shifting the conversation a little bit, uh, imagine, do you have an island that you really like, Jensis? On top an of island. your head, Sicily. An Sicily. Italy. Sicily, okay. Yeah. So you have the whole Sicily for yourself and your loved ones. Mm-hmm. There's no restaurants there. There's nothing. We go a little more tribal here. Okay. Mm. In your bag, you can take one protein, one veggie, one fruit when dessert. And this is an extra bonus for you. You can mm. take one bottle of wine. We'll mm. start with the protein. Which protein do you take with you? Those are the questions.
1: Sausage, probably. Is that or sausage? Salami or something like okay. that. Yeah. Uh, veggie. Oh, so many. Um, it's got to be green.
0: Okay. That's a good, we're narrowing already. <laughs> got to be green. Okay. Yes. After well, the a green. Well,
1: red veggie, you know, it could have been carrots. <laughs> no, tomato, it's, that, Absolutely, you know. <laughs> absolutely.
0: Do you have a, a green now, vegetable? I'm
1: going, to, I'm going to suck up to you and go for something very Portuguese. Tell cabbage. me. Oh, cabbage. oh,
0: perfect, perfect. We got we got sausage, we got cabbage, a fruit.
1: Sounds like sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> um, fruit, uh, Alfonso mango.
0: Okay. Desserts.
1: Well, I'm from the north of England. We have a very, very sweet tooth up there. Could be more or less any dessert. Any wow. dessert, okay. Yeah, yeah. Is
0: there, any, is there a good British dessert you like?
1: Well, so many. Bread and butter pudding is pretty good. Okay. Christmas pudding. I like Christmas pudding.
0: Okay. So take yeah. a Christmas pudding with you. Why not? Okay. Yeah, and why the, not for a while? <laughs> the wine to go with all of this, what would you take?
1: Uh, it would be. I have been asked about my desert island wine several times, and again, I'm sucking up to you. But this is how I actually answer. Madeira, because in, in a sort of theoretical island, you don't actually know whether it's going to be cold or hot, although Sicily, well, some of the air is going to be hot. The great thing about Madeira is that it, you, once you open the bottle, it lasts forever. So you don't have to drink it all at once. And you, um, it, its high acidity will refresh you in hot weather and its alcohol will warm you
0: in cold weather. See, there you go, Madeira. Thank you very much to help. for helping my country in the United States when they signed the Declaration of Independence. It actually was toasted with Madeira wine. So, Madeira yeah.
1: was very big in, in the southern states, wasn't it? In it was, sort of like the yeah. 18th
0: century, although yeah. it's sad to see this is just me confessing a little bit. No, you don't see a lot of Portuguese wines in the US, which is sad. It's
1: very sad, and there I must think be he... some, some specialist importers, aren't there?
0: You said there aren't or
1: I would imagine that there are one or two.
0: Yeah, one or two. But I think that I think it's not so much because, you know, I remember the first time I went to the grocery store here and Portuguese wines were under Spain, which, of course, I started, okay. I started boiling up right in the grocery yeah. store. And I remember talking with the ambassador at the time and he just said, you know, it's not just it's not the American fault. He says, you know, who's selling our wines? I mean, someone in Portugal to say, like, hey, I have these wines. Mm. Do you want you don't find a lot of Portuguese wines, unfortunately? And you know, I'm not the biggest wine connoisseur, but as you said, Portugal has pretty good wines. It, it's said, oh, and good. you and US is such a big market, it just said we don't we're not here a lot, but oh well.
1: An opening there. There's definitely an opening there. That's
0: true. What was your first memory of taste, Genesis? Hmm. When
1: I when I was five. I went and lived for a year with a godmother because my parents were both in hospital with TB. And we stayed with her. She was, I suppose, what you'd call an old maid. She'd never had children. It was wonderful that she had me and my two-year-old brother to live with her for a year. But she used to, like, junk it. Do you know what I mean by junk it?
0: No, what's junk, tell
1: me. Oh, it's it's sort of like... it's, It's a milk product with curds, and it has zero flavor. And that I, I it's a negative memory but i just remember not liking junket
0: and you just you drink it you eat it you just like
1: it, it sets okay. It, okay it sets and so you're supposed to have it by the spoonful
0: and you weren't you weren't a fan of that no 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 <laughs> most underrated ingredient for you
1: i like you see i like all the brassicas i like cabbage i like brussels sprouts which people are very rude about
0: I like I like that people are very rude about it. yes. <laughs> the most overrated ingredient.
1: Um oh I know this. There's something that I just hardly get any taste out of. And but you see, we're all we've all got different sensitivities, haven't we? You yeah, know, my, but- my husband adores white fish. He loves turbot, for instance. <laughs> but unless it sort of jumped out of the sea onto my plate, it leaves me cold i just can't taste what turbot has to offer
0: okay that's a good answer.
1: obviously my fault yeah no really it's not Turbot's fault.
0: Uh, <laughs> best breakfast you can have
1: um the granola made in our son's quality chop house shop
0: what is the strangest combination food-wise when people put one or two ingredients together well two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept and something that you might do food-wise That people look at you and say, like, really, Jens, as we're doing this? Yeah.
1: Well, I can do the second one, which is sort of lactic salty cheese with black cherry jam. Love that. two ingredients that shouldn't be put together are they are they famously put together
0: these two no you know some people put you know i've seen i mean i i tell stories here in podcast i people told me like popcorn in tomato soup uh mayo (laughs) sandwiches with banana you know people do some random stuff is there anything you've seen or that you see or you know your your kids do it or your husband do it or that you see them putting you know even sometimes pineapple and pizza. it's like no for some people
1: yeah I think a lot of unusual combinations can work, like pineapple and salt and strawberries and pepper. Those work really Mm. well. I mean, you have some restaurant menus you just laugh at, don't you? When it's obviously (laughs) often an inexperienced chef who's trying to make a mark and doesn't realise that more is not necessarily merrier and, Mm. and just throws sort of six different ingredients onto a, a savory dish. That yeah.
0: that can be pretty weird. Wine uh, when it comes to wine, and I think you're very open about hey, people can experiment what they want, you know, people like what they like. Is there anything particular with wine that you wouldn't pair? Or would you think it's a or maybe companies are doing a, a type of wine mixing some, you know, spices or something that for you that combination is just not quite I there. Don't.
1: I think in America, you've got this new vogue for aging wine in weird barrels, like, you know, Sauvignon in a bourbon barrel. Sounds pretty disgusting to me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I haven't tasted it, so it's unfair of me to be rude about it.
0: Okay. It's okay. Uh, The name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience, and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded expectations. Uh-huh. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? Can you remind me about them? I can. Yeah, that's okay. Turning <laughs> chickens, someone that has a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Well, that's me. Well, okay. Well, there you go. That's the answer then. And breaking dishes <laughs> is exceeded expectations.
1: No, I'm I'm definitely turning chickens.
0: See? You yeah. should put that in a column because people will be like, "What she's talking about? Yes, turning chickens. <laughs> At the end of the podcast, I like to, to ask my guests to sell their fish. This is other Portuguese phrase. Sell your fish means to talk about yourself, you know, a A lot of people know you, but, you know, where people can find you, the websites, uh, you know, anything in the future for you. So just just sell your fish a little bit, Jancis, please.
1: Okay, some some salt cod coming up. (laughs) The best place to find me without paying anything is JancisRobinson.com, J-A-N-C-I-S, Robinson.com. And we have a ridiculous amount of material there. We publish two articles every day. We must be mad. And about a third of them are free but we've got a massive learn section of all about wine, which is also free. But I'm also in the Financial Times every Saturday. And then I've just got all these books. And if an, actually anyone who does want a quick guide, the essentials of wine, it's probably that book that you mentioned, the 24 hour wine expert, which is $12.95 in its US edition. And it's a very thin book. You can pretty much get it in your pocket. And it's just, I wrote it in conjunction with our daughter who was then 24 and she quizzed her friends about what they wanted to know about wine. And it's just, it's just the bare bones, but it's, it's it's all the myths exploded and it's enough to get you by.
0: Perfect. Before we go, are you a good cook?
1: I would, I have not cooked since about 1984.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I want, (laughs) I want that for my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. my
1: husband, when we had two young children, my husband was a restaurateur and said he couldn't he wanted to have the best restaurant in London and be the worst cook. And he'd already achieved one of those aims. And but when we had the two young children, he kind of said, step aside, because he'd got the bug watching his chef cook. And since then, he's been the most wonderful cook and marketer and washer up. I think
0: he's also a food critic right so he, does, he yeah. knows these things yes yeah. he knows these things so you're very lucky do you know what's for dinner tonight just share with us
1: uh that's a good question i don't know
0: you'd be surprised you don't even yes. care like whatever comes yes. here i mean it's uh, always a lovely surprise <laughs> jesse thank you very oh, no, much i do i do oh. we're
1: going to get a takeout from a great local indian because poor chap, he's going into hospital for major gut surgery on Wednesday. So yeah, wants him. a nice input of spicy food before that.
0: But he deserves it. He yeah. deserves it. Genesis, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. This was a pleasure. You said yes right away. I was very surprised. I was very happy. This well, the... I
1: asked. I did ask Michel Roux whether and he recommended the experience. Thank you.
0: Michel is <laughs> a good guy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I could not, I, I have just one more episode after that. That's a surprise, except the, the special guest will be. And thank you very much. This was a lovely pre- a pleasure. You know, keep going to Portugal, keep buying Portuguese wines. I got I to gotta help my country here. Okay. And this was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Jensens. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jansons, for coming on the podcast. We have one more episode to go. Again, don't be sad. I'll be back in September, October, something like that. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so at info at Follow me on Instagram, Facebook at David G. Chef. You can also follow me on Twitter at David pod david with a e at the end this has been an absolutely pleasure i always say this but it's true thank you very much for your support don't forget to share the podcast don't forget to leave a review it's super important wherever you can find your podcast and that's it i'll be back next week for the final episode and it'll be a great one stay safe be happy Adios.